I want to invite you to open your Bible to the small epistle of James. We're in chapter 5. We're going to deal with one verse today, one verse only. Over, over four decades ago, I had two telephone conversations that were probably two minutes, maybe three minutes at the most, with a lady by the name of Mrs. McDowell. And I still remember her today. Mrs. McDowell was the wife of a pastor who had died, and he had a library, uh, nothing digital at that time. And so pastors building their library was a big deal. And I was a student at Calvary Bible College. I'd been there maybe a year, so I think I, the first year, so I think I was 23 years old. And she heard about me somehow and called me and wanted to know if I wanted to go through her husband's books and take whatever it was that I wanted. And that was a big deal. I was married to Kathy, and she wasn't independently wealthy, and I wasn't independently wealthy, and so that was a big deal. So we marked a time that I would go to her house and go through her books. And I was 23. I probably had Kristen by then, as busy as a 23-year-old Jerry is. And Mrs. McDowell was 85 to 90, something like that. And I missed the time that I was supposed to meet her, and I just wrote it off. I called her later, and what I did is didn't respect her time. And I just assumed because I'm 23 and busy and she's 85 and probably doesn't have a lot going on today that that was okay. Mrs. McDowell, in her kindness and grace, taught me a huge lesson that I still remember today. And that is let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And I'm 40 years beyond that. Never even saw the lady face to face. I got a lot of the books She sent them to Calvary Bible College, and I went out there and went through them, and then they received the rest for their library. A a lesson that is just incredibly valuable. We're in James chapter 5, verse 12 today, and that's all that we're going to talk about. And I titled this message, Are You Good for Your Word? And obviously, all of us are growing in the Lord, and maybe some of us need to grow in that more than others, but certainly we're going to find out that it's something that God wants us to be. That's that we be good for our word. James chapter 5, verse 12 says this, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. He starts this verse off with, but above all. James highlights the truth of this individual sentence to an even higher level than all of the significant truths that he's addressed so far in his epistle. And these are some of the things that he addresses. And he says this is above all of these. He's addressed the sure judgment of the unrepentant rich, just going backwards. He's addressed the need to not grumble against one another, to not judge a brother, to not presume about tomorrow, to resist the devil, the need to tame the tongue, the truth of faith without works is dead. That's huge. Not demonstrating favoritism, not being hearers only of the word, a proper perspective during trials. The truths that he's addressed are no small issues. They're huge. 
They're critical. They're significant. And yet he says, above all of those things, consider this one. This phrase sets the truth of this verse in primary place. We read it. It's just one sentence. It's sandwiched in between two lengthier passages dealing with significant issues. We need to be really careful that we don't just overlook it or treat it with less than above all attention. The idea of letting my yes be yes and my no be no deserves my above all else attention. And I am thankful 40 some years later that this grace filled widow extended to me by teaching me the significance of my word. So in court, a court of law, when you're asked to place your hand on a Bible, would it be wrong to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I don't think so, unless they're empty words and you don't intend to tell the truth, and that happens also. Or when a president is sworn into the office and says, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. Is that improper? In light of James chapter 5, verse 12, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath. I don't think so, unless they're words that aren't filled with truth. Is it wrong for you or for me to sign a contract giving our word that will fulfill our side of the contract, whether it be a housing contract or whatever other kind of contract, a binding contract? I don't think it is if it's truthful. One of the things that I've seen on my credit report, the nice thing about the internet is we can check our credit report these days about any time that you want. One of the things that I've seen on my credit report over and over is it says, He pays as he agreed. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you don't see that on your credit report, the numbers are probably a little bit lower because you don't pay as you agreed. They're not interested that you just pay. They're interested that you pay consistently and in a timely manner, that you pay as you agree. Believers' words were of significant concern to James. He discusses speech in every chapter. In chapter 1, he wrote, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. In chapter 2, he exhorted, So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. In chapter 3, he gave several verses um, where he addressed the difficulty of controlling the tongue, and then he exhorted believers to do so and were capable of it because of the Spirit of God who resides within us, if we're yielded to him. In chapter 4, verse 11, he wrote about speaking against a fellow believer and equated that with speaking against the law. How believers speak was a concern because he knew that our speech is a manifestation of what's within our heart. And that just that echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 12 and Luke 6 where Jesus to the Pharisees said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The idea of I didn't mean to say that is really not true. I didn't mean for you to hear me say that might be true. I didn't mean to say it, probably isn't. Now James says in chapter 5, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into uh, uh, to judgment. 
Swearing here doesn't mean four-letter words or unwholesome talk. It Rather, it refers to giving an oath, the giving of one's word, and honoring one's word. By the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jews had taken swearing or oath-taking to a ridiculous level. I want to tell you about this. Like they did with many other teachings they started, that started as truths of the Old Testament and then they embellished them. Some of, these were, uh, some of these found their way into the church through the converted Jews or those who said they were believers. And James is trying to help them see that if you are a believer, you'll walk and do according to this. Um, not a works salvation, but because God is in my heart, working in my heart, the Spirit of God works. The Word of God is alive as well. Then I'm growing in the Lord. In Matthew 23, Jesus addressed swearing among the eight woes pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees. This is what he says in Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. They had a double standard. If you swear by this, doesn't mean anything. You can not do it or do it. It doesn't really matter. But if you swear by the gold that's in the temple, now you're really obligated to do what it is that you've sworn. Jesus said to them, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obligated to perform it. Another double standard again. You can swear by the altar, but I really don't need to do my word there because it's just the altar. But if I swear by the gift that's on the altar, well, now I really have to do what I'm supposed to do because it's the gift that's offered to God that's on the altar. And Jesus again says, fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven and swears by the throne of God and by, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. They had created a system of swearing and oath taking where it was when it was really valid and when it wasn't valid that I give an oath or that I swear or that I give my word. If God were in some way involved in their oath or their swearing, um, it was real. But if they hadn't mentioned God or he wasn't involved in it, then it really didn't mean that I had to fulfill my word. That's what Jesus is addressing. So the altar, well, you can swear by that, but the gift that's on the altar, well, it was offered to God, so now I really have to do whatever it is that I said. The temple, well, that's just a building, but the gold that's in the temple were offerings that were given to God, so I really need to do what I'm supposed to do now. And Jesus called them fools and blind. They had created a system of swearing and oath-taking that wasn't valid. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we have the obligation placed upon us from God through Scripture and the Spirit of God of allowing our yes to be yes and our no to be no. And if you're not there, I'm convinced that God would use James 5 and Jesus' words to prick your heart. And if there's repentance that's needed, you acknowledge it, you admit it, you repent before the Lord, and then you start out on that path of learning how to let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
And then Jesus added, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So he doesn't just take it to a human level. He says that it's demonically uh, motivated. If you have to swear in some way to back your word, then your word is of no value. If you have to swear by the throne or by the offering or by God in heaven. I want to read something from Got Questions. Uh, Got Questions is a website. If you're new here and haven't heard this, I need to put this in the bulletin. Got Questions is a website where you can go and ask biblical questions, and there are many, like tens of thousands of thousands, that have already been answered. But if it's not answered, they'll they'll send out that uh, question to those who have uh, uh, chosen to write answers for them, filter that through, and then place it on their website. A little background information is helpful in understanding Jesus' words here. The religious leaders of the day advocated keeping a vow if it was a public vow using God's name. Well, if it's public and other people see me and I use God's name, I'm kind of stuck. And so I really need to honor my word. However, if the vow was made in the course of everyday conversation, referencing only heaven or earth or Jerusalem, it wasn't really binding. So your word doesn't mean your word. They had created a loophole. They could lie or exaggerate in their conversations and lend themselves to an air of credibility by saying, I swear by heaven that this is true. They could not be held to account because they did not specifically swear by God's name and the vow was private. Jesus countered that idea. If you're swearing something, it had to it had better be true. He says, in fact, all you need to see, all you need to say is yes and no. Your words should be good. There's no need for overwrought expressions to bolster your case. Our words should be good. It's kind of like when you were a kid. Maybe you did this. When you were a kid, did you ever cross your fingers and pretend that what you were saying or doing wasn't really true and you weren't really bound by it? Kind of childish is what kids do. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. So it had permeated the whole Jewish society. I swear that you're my best friend, but because my hand's behind my back and you don't see that my fingers are crossed, I don't really have to be your best friend. Kind of childish, isn't it? Politicians often, or people in general, do the same thing today. They say something and then try to walk it backwards if it has a negative outcome. It's a full-blown tragedy, but it's not godly. Excuse me, it's a full-blown strategy, but it's not godly. Interestingly, Kathy researched this for me, for Muslims, according to Sharia law, it, not only, it, it, not, it is not only permitted, but sometimes obligatory to deceive. An example, Muslims who must choose between either recanting Islam or being put to death are not only permitted to lie, to lie by pretending to have apostatized, but according to the Quran, chapter 4, verse 29, it's the opinion of many that Muslims are obligated to lie in such instances. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Put that in a Christian context and it would be saying this. The teenage girl in Columbine who was told to deny her faith with a gun to her head or die could have, even should have lied in order to save her life. But in my opinion, she's a hero who continues to speak even though she no longer walks among us because she held faith, her faith true to her Lord even unto death. Scripture shows us that being persecuted, even killed for Christ will happen. Most should be persecuted. Um, some will die as well. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, Jesus said in John chapter 15. Our yes should be yes, 
and our no should be no. And some 42 or 43 years ago, Mrs. McDowell taught me that. Well, actually, the Lord taught me that through this widow, and I am really thankful um, that he did. Why is the truth of letting your yes be yes and your no, no above all else? All of those other critical significant truths that James spoke of and wrote of. Why is this let your yes be yes and your no, no above all else? And I've got three reasons. Maybe you could think of another. Because to live contrary to it is to live contrary to the law of God. That doesn't mean we fulfill the law and are righteous, but we see the righteousness of God in the law. To live contrary to letting my yes be yes and my no, no, is to live contrary to the law. Listen to what it says in Leviticus 19. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. He didn't say don't swear by my name here. He said don't swear by my name falsely. And so I swear to God that you're my best friend. I swear to God that if you'll give me this house, then I'll make these payments. Don't swear by, by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord God, your God. I am the Lord. Um, why is the truth of letting our yes be yes, our no be no, and above all else truth? Because to live contrary to it is to live contrary to the law. You shall not take the Lord's name, the Lord your God's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This idea of using God's name in swearing uh, or, or, or expressing an oath uh, made it to the Ten Commandments. Using God's name to convince someone else I'm telling the truth when I'm actually hiding a lie is a vain, empty use of the Lord's name. And I think he has that use in mind much more than just using his name in a cuss word. That's true also, but I think this idea of using God's name to express truth when it's not the truth from my heart is what he had in mind as well. That's one of the reasons it's above all else. Another, because lying and false statements are contrary to the character of God. Numbers chapter 23 says this, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. His character is truth-telling all the time. He doesn't need to repent. God has made covenants and sworn by them by his name. He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Noah, a Davidic covenant, the new covenant which we just observed this morning, the, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. In Hebrews 6 it says, When God made a, co- a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply uh, you. God is consistently good for his word, be it a blessing for those who follow his word or be it a curse for those who choose to reject his word, whether it leads to heaven or whether it leads to hell, God is good for his word. Don't wonder if he's going to fudge on it. A third reason that this is an above all else truth is because in our spiritual journey, it is specifically involved in becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. And if God is good for his word, being conformed to the image of Christ means that he desires that we be good for our word. Jesus said it twice in the Gospels. Uh, uh, James as well echoed it. Um, since God is good for his word, he desires that his followers be good for theirs. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, I'm not perfect. I've heard that, and I'm not either. Or, I'm not Jesus, and I've heard that, and I'm not either. 
but we're to be conformed to the image of his son. And rather than using that as an excuse, it's to be a motivation to repent and when it's necessary and to be more conformed to the image of, of, of Christ. Second Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The iniquity of the tongue was of particular interest to James because what we, what we speak, we speak from our heart. God is good for his word and he desires his followers to be good for their word as well. Let your yes be yes. And your no, no, lest you fall into judgment, or another translation says under judgment, or into condemnation, or in hypocrisy. Um, the interesting thing about this word, uh, MacArthur commentary says, is that the word speaks to the eternal judgment in other, new, this specific word speaks to eternal judgment in the other New Testament passages. Um, the, judge, the judgment of the deeds done in the body is a completely different word. This seems to be then, if that's true, that this would be another test as to whether my genuine conversion is genuine or not, um, whether I honor the Lord and let my yes be yes and my no, no. A question that I have is this, and it's going to be a little bit lengthy, is it ever okay to set this truth aside, to deviate from letting my yes be yes and my no, no? Psalm 15 says this, verse 5, a short psalm, five verses, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. And verse 4 says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. If I swear to do something, even if it costs me time and money or reputation or whatever it is that you might fill in the blank, if I have given my word that I will do something, Psalm 15 verse 4 says that I should do that. Even if it hurts me, even if it costs me something. Even when your word costs you, don't pretend that it's okay to mentally cross your fingers like you might have done as a child. Or like the scribes and the Pharisees say, you swore, but it wasn't really swearing because we didn't involve God in some way. It wasn't the gold that's in the temple that was offered to God. It was just the temple. It isn't the altar. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's, God isn't involved here. David said, even if it costs us something, the righteous will uphold his word. There was a man in our church, Paul Sweezy is his name, Al or Eleanor Sweezy just moved to Texas. Paul was a home builder, he used to sit way back there in the corner. I buried him, and I can't remember, I could look it up, but I just estimated 12, 15 years ago. Paul told me once that he had never built a home with a written contract. He always only worked with a shaking of a hand. You're good for your word. I'm going to be good for my word. I'm not saying you should do that in 2023, but we need to be good for our word. That's the point. Even if it costs you something, it's not okay to set aside this truth of your yes being yes or your no being no. I'm not going to look at it. We don't have time, but you might mark down Judges chapter 11. It costs Jephthah dearly. Judges, Judges chapter 11. What about, what about when the other person or group of people doesn't function with the same standard of biblical integrity? Then is it okay for me to change my yes to mean no and my no to mean yes? Is it okay to set aside this truth then? 
Is it okay to say you're not upholding, they're not upholding their word, so it's okay for me to not uphold my word? Is it's really their fault and justify why I don't do what I do before the Lord? In the story of the battle of Jericho, and turn to Joshua, we're going to finish here. In the story of the battle of Jericho, Joshua is leading the children of Israel to conquer the promised land. Rahab was a harlot from Jericho, and she protected and hid two spies and saved their life. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen upon us. And she hid them and sent, them, uh, and sent the Jericho soldiers on a wild goose chase at night, at night. Rahab asked the two men to swear to her in Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 and following. Rahab said, Now therefore please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household, Excuse me, give me a pledge of truth. Spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. They were very specific in the sign that was supposed to be given and said, if you don't do this exactly how we're saying that you're supposed to do this, we're not obligated to perform our word. They functioned with integrity. She dealt with the spies with integrity, and in turn, they dealt with her with integrity as well. And isn't it interesting that even though her people were among those that were to be completely slaughtered, completely annihilated, we find her in Jesus' lineage. That would be the grace of God. This example, that's an example of those that were to be annihilated, finding their way into honoring their word. Another example uh, that we find in Judges is the example of the Gibeonites. Look to, look to uh, Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites were also among the people that were to be utterly destroyed. Rahab didn't trick the two spies with, with a word, uh, word um, deception. The Gibeonites tricked the the Israelites. And it says back in Deuteronomy, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, to Joshua, to Moses, passed on to Joshua, you shall utterly destroy them, uh, the inheritance of the people of the land, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Don't really understand all of that. I have some ideas about God and his ability to know who would repent, who wouldn't repent, what their heart status was, but that was the command that was given. Jericho had been conquered. Ai at first defeated Israel because of the sin of Achan. Achan, Achan was dealt with and then Ai was conquered and God's working for Israel became even more known. And I'm in chapter 9 now and I want to read this story of the children of Gibeon, the Gibeonites. It came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hill and in the lowlands and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all of those that were to be done with, they heard about it, the defeat of Jericho and Ai, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. 
and went and pretended to be ambassadors. So there's deception going on. There's trickery. They're just going to lie right and left. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. They went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a far land, now therefore make a covenant with us. They lied. They were deceiving. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, they started out good, perhaps you, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, that was a lie. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we've heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan, uh, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and the inhabitants of our country spoke to us. That's a lie. Take provision with you for the journey. Go to meet them. Say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours was taken hot from our provision for, uh, from our houses on the day we p- departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. These wineskins which we filled were new. See, now they're torn. These garments and our sandals have become so old, uh, have become old of the very long journey. More lies, just lie upon lie upon lie. We've been walking so long, our sandals wore out. That's what they were saying. Then the men, verse 14, of Israel took some of their provision But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. That was their mistake. It would be our mistake as well if we don't ask counsel of the Lord in everything we do. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live and rule and let, and let them live and the rulers of the congregation swore to them, we're not going to destroy you. You've come from a long land, a land far away. You've really sacrificed. You use God terms and want to honor our God as well. So they swore to them. It happened, verse 16, at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Beroth, and Kirjath-Jerarim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. They said within themselves, we gave our word. They were deceptive, they lied, but we gave our word. And when I give my word, my fulfilling my portion of my word isn't dependent upon anyone else in the world. They gave their word. I might suffer. It might cost me something. It cost, it cost Jephthah a lot, but they had given their word. They did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And, all the, and imagine this one, all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This, will, this we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us. The reason I'm comp- 
that the reason I'm fulfilling my word is because I don't want the wrath of God on me. It isn't because you or the situation is, is a person of integrity, but I've given my word. And I don't want the wrath of God to be upon me because of the oath which we have sworn to them. The rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had appointed them. And when we fast forward to David's time and he names all of the tribes and all of the people, he names the servant of the house of God, that would be these people that he's naming as well. Then Joshua called for them. He spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us? Saying, we are very far, we are very far from you when you dwell near us. Therefore you are cursed. None of you shall be freed from, the, from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. Couldn't they just have said, you lied to us over and over and over. You tricked us. I am not obligated to fulfill my word. Or if we sign a contract that somebody has tricked us, couldn't we just say, you tricked me, you deceived me, I'm not going to fulfill my word. The, the children of Israel in this example said they didn't want the wrath of God upon them. So we need to be very, very careful in what we speak. Takes us back to James, be quick to hear and slow to what? Slow to speech. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we have taken. Joshua's responsibility and his leader's responsibility was to fulfill their word, just as your responsibility and my responsibility is to fulfill our word. Someone may try to fool us or has already fooled us. They may try to trick us and lie to us, and we certainly need wisdom and insight, and we need to remember what they didn't remember to seek counsel from the Lord. Our responsibility, James says and Jesus says, is to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to honor and uphold our word and let the integrity of our testimony be a glory to God. When does a non-truth become a non-truth? Does it become a non-truth when it's discovered? No. It becomes a non-truth the minute it leaves my lips. When I speak a lie, whether anyone ever discovers it or not, God already knows, and in my heart, I already know as well. And James is encouraging us to be careful with our words over and over and over, every single chapter. And here he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your word be be your word. Let's finish with these words from the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools for they do not know what, that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God for God is in heaven, you on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, that this also is vanity. But fear God." Jesus and the Holy Spirit through James say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. Thank you for uh, a significant reminder of us honoring our word. 
if we follow much in politics or if we see things on TV or whatever media platform we use, we see people violate this over and over and over. Um, give us the sensitivity to you and your honor and your word and your spirit that we would let our testimony be one of their yes is a yes and their no is a no. And in that way, may we honor you. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.